Welcome to the Association 4.0 podcast. I'm Sherry Budziak, CEO and founder of Source. Association 4.0 is how we describe the skills needed to navigate Industry 4.0 or the digital marketplace. Today, it is more important than ever for organizations to have a strong channel network. In this podcast, Sharon Rice, Managing Director of Business Strategy for Source will discuss the importance of channel networks and channel development with Jim Leahy, who is an accomplished association executive and global channel leader. Hello, everyone. My name is Sharon Rice, and I'm the Managing Director of Business Strategy for .orgsource. I'm really pleased again today to have with me Jim Leahy. Jim and I have been doing a series of podcasts on channel relationships, and I'm really excited for the conversation today when we're going to be talking about uh, developing the international market. So, Jim, welcome. Hi, Sharon. Nice to speak with you again on a subject that's near and dear to my heart, growing internationally. Yeah. Well, and I've known you for a while and always in kind of this context of channel relationships and, and international development. This is an area that you have uh, probably your core experience has been in developing international yeah. markets. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. So um, it's something I've spent a long time uh, at and uh, hopefully learned a little bit about. <laughs> Excellent. So why, <laughs> why are you so passionate about international development now, especially for associations? Yeah, I think that it's, you know, it's really a great way to, for an organization to kind of further your mission, your customer base and your revenue, but really more than that, more than those kind of obvious uh, headline things is we're in a globalized society. So if you really look at the future of any organization, having a connection to where your members and clients are moving to or are also in addition to your home country, I think is very important. And then having a way to really address those requirements in a more purposeful way sets your organization up for a much healthier future. So I, not that every organization needs to be international, but I think every organization needs to really look at, is it time to develop capabilities in the international arena or uh, is it not? But it's, it's something that needs to at least be factored into the, the strategy. What, what do we do to, to meet our, the needs of our international members and clients? Yeah, and I'm, this is an area that so many associations pre-pandemic at least were interested in. You know, I, I felt like I had two kinds of clients um, in the past, those that were already international in scope and those that were considering some type of international operation. So really in a nutshell, how do associations develop and grow internationally? Yeah, it's a big question, and uh, it's going to take a little bit of time to unpack that, but I, I think at a very high level, it starts with the structure. And associations can grow really in one of two ways at a high level, either virtually, they can grow virtually, or they can grow physically. Growing virtually means that you can serve your international clients and members virtually from your home country. Growing physically means that those members and clients need some type of human interaction, whether that's in association direct resources in various countries, can get very complicated and expensive, or through the development of partners who can represent your association locally. In so, any event. 
whether it's virtual or physical, sorry to interrupt you, but in any, in any event, whether it's virtual or physical, it's got to be purposeful, Sharon. I mean, they really need to have a plan on where they're going to to do their efforts. But go well, ahead. Yeah, and it seems like, I mean, given the conditions of the pandemic where, you know, more and more associations are really focusing on direct delivery or virtual delivery, as you're talking about it, 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 it seems like that would be the preferred option. But, you know, to your point that you have to be intentional about it, I'll just ask the question, is, is orienting your international operation around virtual delivery always the best thing for the long term, I guess, I'm asking? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it can be, but I think I'd like to take a step back from that a little bit, because I think we all acknowledge that, you know, COVID has opened up new opportunities. I mean, COVID has allowed corporations to make more complex decisions virtually, decisions that in prior pre-COVID era required a lot of in-person mentoring and support is now become more more willing to be uh, virtually made. However, ultimately, and how you structure your international business strategy really comes down to the needs of your end customers and the journey those customers need to take to get to fruition, to get to conclusion. There's really three types of customer segments to consider. The first one is what we call no or low touch customers. The second one is called medium touch. And the third one's called high touch, no surprise. No or low touch customers means the demand comes to you and it doesn't require human interaction or human interface really, or very minimal in order to get the business transacted. Medium touch, not like that. Medium touch requires some type of local sales and support in a time frame of 12 months or less. And high touch, they're larger, more complicated opportunities that have a sales cycle of more than one year. So again, there's three modalities, no or low touch, medium touch, and high touch. If your international opportunity base is no or low touch, then a virtual pathway probably makes the most sense. In fact, does make the most sense. However, if you're in a space where your members and your corporate clients require some type of local representation in that revenue window of 12 minutes or less, then in the medium touch sphere, some type of local resources are gonna be required to really properly develop that business. Now, does that mean you do it directly or through partners? That's kind of, we'll unpack that a little bit in the call. And then finally on the high touch front, these are usually very high value customers and clients that have more custom complex requirements. And usually the opportunities um, are, are very large in terms of revenue and they take at least a year or more to bring to fruition. So ultimately it's not about COVID and virtual. It's really about looking at your customer base and, um, deciding what you're going after. Is it no or low touch, medium touch, or high touch? And that really drives how you structure the business in order to uh, uh, to grow. So I know you have a process that you kind of go through with associations that are looking at developing this international market. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go through the podcast today. But mm-hmm. in general, what are, you, what are the major 
things that associations need to take into consideration when they're considering developing an international market? What's your best advice to them? Sure. Um, at a kind of at a high level, you got to do your preparation. Um, it's affordable to plan, but it's costly to execute. I can think of both in my commercial career and in my association career where decisions were made for growing a business in a particular country, people were hired, resources were spent, and that decision ultimately wasn't the best decision and a retrenchment had to occur. So do your preparation. It's affordable to plan, but costly to execute. Know your target customer journey. We just talked about that. So are you targeting low, medium, or high-touch customers? Because that's really going to drive the structure you put in place. Um, prioritize your markets. You'll find in, in, in anything that 80-20 rule pretty much always applies. But you want to really focus your development efforts on your top five potential markets uh, for potential customer and member bases. You can't be everything to everyone. And ultimately, um, one of the things that happens in the channel dynamic of expansion is you start to work internationally and you waste time in countries with little or no markets and partners who do little or nothing in terms of productivity. So prioritize your markets and then ultimately be realistic about your revenue expectations and how long it's going to take and about what kind of operating structure you put in place. You know, don't overinvest if it's out of alignment with when the revenue is going to come, because a lot of times people go in all eager and they build a cost structure. It's not sustainable and they have to retrench. So I am much more, let's get it planned. Let's be realistic, know who your customer is, make your priority and then stage it so you can sustain it. Yeah. You know what? As a planner, I love that it's affordable to plan and costly to execute. Um, so let's, let's dive in at that level a little bit. So in this planning phase, in this preparation phase, what are you really looking for associations to do? Sure. And I think really, you know, moving in a new market, whether you're a commercial business or your association has a lot of similarities. So in fact, what I'd like to use is a little bit of an example of uh, some experience from my background. So in the 2000s, I had the opportunity to relocate to London, to the UK, to help a small Canadian technology company called Sierra Wireless launch their business in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And it was a complete cold start operation. And what I mean by that is when I arrived in London, we literally had no customers in EMEA, no revenue, but we saw a great opportunity for our products and services that were in the pipeline that would emerge within about 12 to 13 months. So we hired the initial team, we opened up the subsidiary, and you know we set about developing a comprehensive market launch and business development plan. And it had a lot of the elements I'm sure folks listening today put in their plans, you know, assessing the market, looking at your competitors and what's their position in the market, looking at gaps and opportunities, you know, where, where can your product inhabit opportunities that your competitors are not going after, having a very clear value proposition. And that value proposition has to be that elevator pitch that either individuals or companies can 
very quickly understand why your services and products and membership are of value. Um, prioritize and focus on your top markets and clients. So again, you can't be everything to everybody. Having an execution plan and then execute. And of course, whenever you execute, you find things that are not working or suppositions that were incorrect. So you got to modify your plan as you go. And I'm proud to say that within two years of launch, we were a $10 million a year business. And then within 18 months of my taking the helm in the leadership role, we actually grew it about to, to north of $50 million. And that largely came from focusing our efforts on the right countries, the right customer segments, and the beefer, beefier, bigger opportunities. So we really were quite purposeful because we accomplished it with a skinny team. Yeah. And you know, so, I think yeah. one of the things that associations are, um, especially those associations maybe that are reticent to expand internationally, they their minds immediately go to, well, we're going to have to open a subsidiary. We're going to have to put boots on the ground in, in that non-North American market that we're trying to serve. Um, you know, is it better always to have an international subsidiary or that, you know, based on your case, you were wildly successful with Sierra being in market. Um, is that something that is just generally going to be true and an association should take into consideration setting up an international subsidiary? Yeah. No, I, I, I don't think it is. I mean, again, I go back to that low, medium or high touch. The case of Sierra Wireless, particularly early on, it was a high-touch market development, business development exercise. It required direct resources to, to really crack open the market. But I think for a lot of associations, they fit in the, there's some lower no-touch opportunities. And then a lot of the interesting opportunities can be in that medium-touch space that can be very well served by uh, indirect effort. So you know, going down the subsidiary path, it's expensive. Um, so look at your customer journey. And uh, ultimately, that's going to drive what you have to do. But I think by and large, for most associations, you don't have to go down that subsidiary path. And I am very hesitant, because once you build that cost structure, it just takes the the trajectory of the results to a different level. And it also really boxes you in and how you can discover and develop the market. Yeah. So if we think about the, the low, you know, medium and high touch, let me ask you to put it in the context of, let's say a traditional association business like certification. So if you're trying to develop an international market for your certification, is that low touch? Is it medium touch? Where will you put that kind of business? If you're trying to develop an international market for your existing certification, I would suggest that that's probably in the medium touch with some opportunities in the lower no touch. You know, there's some organic business you can scoop up through through virtual engagement. But but I think that the uh, it it all depends on if there is some existent market demand for what you have to offer. Um, if literally there is no demand, there's no knowledge of the certification, none of the corporations, none of the multinational corporations 
in a particular market are either aware of or asking for your product, then that is a cold start operation that probably is going to require much more of a presence from your organization directly and or uh, engagement through a very strategic and uh, foundational partner who does a lot of that work on your behalf. But to find those kinds of partners, there has to be something in it for them to really invest at that level. So, so I don't know if I answer your question completely there, but again, the, the customer segment, what's, what's behind that is really looking at the demand landscape, the demand picture, and there has to be some knowledge or awareness for your products within those markets, uh, some type of demand that's part of that market prioritization. Well, you know, I think that especially when I started to do more international work and, and one of the things that um, customers, members that we had made us painfully aware of is that we really didn't understand from our U.S.-based perspective what that, that local market was like outside of the United States. And, and that was for me at the time, one of the reasons I realized how important channel partners were is that they really could help us understand the local market, make sure that we were developing products and services that would meet local needs, but they were much more efficient at penetrating local markets than we were ever going to be. Um, And even taken into consideration all the digital technology that's available for us. So let's talk a little bit about using channels to expand international internationally, what's the benefit of having a channel, an international channel? Sure. So I, I, the a channel network, I think, is best suited for that, that medium touch environment. And uh, channel partner organizations can, can offer a lot of value along the lines of providing, like you just said, that local presence, knowledge, and relationships. So they can take your product, your messaging, your positioning, and essentially they can provide that local filter, local tailoring, local mentoring in order to uh, gain adoption. They're cost efficient. You know, channels use their own capital to fund business operations and business development, not your capital. They're scalable. You can add them where there's needed and where there's demand. And very importantly, they provide protection. They provide air cover from local regulatory and compliance requirements. So there's all sorts of nuances about taking a product from one country or region like North America and then shipping it into another region like Europe or uh, Asia uh, or Africa. There's local things, very mundane things like customs clearance and value-added tax, and all sorts of things that could be quite complex. And um, if you don't have a locally registered organization to clear product, a lot of times it's better suited to have a partner do that on your behalf. So properly executed, channel partners really can magnify your presence and growth and do things and have knowledge and insights that you don't have because you're not in that market. 
So, and I think that's a good summary of it. And what's interesting to me is that a lot of associations, when they think about international growth, you know, their heads pretty quickly go to setting up their own presence in a, in a non-North American market. But you're talking about them providing air coverage, like the protection and the knowledge of local regulation and compliance. And um, a lot of associations obviously have to be aware of that. Their products and services have to conform to those local standards and local regulations. And a channel partner um, then becomes that intelligence organization to make sure that you color inside the lines. And as you mentioned before, they're essentially doing it on their own dime um, and they're compensated by that usually how? So yeah, they're compensated by the spread between what they pay you for the product and service and what they ultimately charge the client or the individual customer. Now, the best partners are partners who don't just act as uh, go-betweens and, and product shifters, but in fact, take whatever you have and add some kind of value to it. So they add some uniqueness or additional services. They are what you would call a value-added partner. These are the best partners to have in my estimation, because frankly, that value add really can develop much uh, more meaningful and customer relationships and also allow them ways to really sustain what they do. So they make their money based on the spread of those two things, but it's beyond the transaction. They've really got to be value added, you know, and, and any partners you develop, you really want to develop partners that, that have some value beyond just um, the mechanics of shifting a product in and out of the market because the internet, you know, people can see what things cost. They can see what they can get things over the internet for um, box shifters or product shifters really uh, don't offer a lot of value. And it's, it becomes very apparent. It's those people who are add value and services around what you do can really take you into more meaningful potential relationships. Yeah, that makes sense. So now let's move on, you know, kind of, to the next phase, which is really talking about how you, you mentioned before that that associations really need to prioritize markets. So it's it's so important not to think of you know the the international marketplace as a monolith, like it's North America and then everybody else, or the United States and every other country, but that you have literally hundreds of markets. Um, and even thousands, depending on how regional you get in your analysis, that are potential markets for you. So how do you really prioritize what markets you're going to get into? Great question. I like to uh, focus on the top five potential markets. So just think, you know, you got five fingers and one hand, think of your top five markets. And you really want to identify and quantify where those markets are. You know, where are they? Uh, oftentimes, hopefully, you know, I described my Sierra wireless experience, which was a cold start in EMEA, uh, but most associations have a certain amount of members and clients in international locations. So what's your current revenue in your top markets and how many members do you have in those markets and whether they're individuals or corporations and, and, it can be a bit more difficult to unpack, but who are your top existing customers in those markets? Not just your partners, but if there are corporate clients, 
in those top five countries, who are your big clients? Who has really adopted your organization's body of knowledge and it could be certifications and or services and really values it? Because you need to not only discover the data, but you need to then speak with those, at least a sample of those individuals to understand what it is they value about your organization. Um, look at your North America customer base. Where are they based internationally? So a great exercise for an association to do is, is really connect the dots from your customer flow. Let's take your Middle East and Africa. And you might have, interestingly enough, out of your 10 top, your top five or 10 international customers, are they the same as your top five or 10 domestic customers? You, this is how you really begin to look at addressing your business globally. And, and certainly I have found um, both on the commercial side and the association side that you know, government statistics and other associations who categorize certain types of manufacturers and company organizations can really help you build a picture in those top five markets of potential individuals and companies who are aligned with the discipline of your association, whatever it is. You also want to look at your competition. You know, where are their top markets and do they sell direct or do they sell through partners? Not so much because you want to go after your competitors' partners because a lot of times that doesn't work, but it's good to understand where your competition is gaining business internationally as well. And all this data can really help you build a picture of those top five markets. So let's think about for a second, then selecting partners. If you decide to go the partner route and you know create a partnership channel um, in these top five markets, for associations in general, let's say that you have you know standard business. So you you offer membership, you have training, and, and let's go ahead and say you have certification as well. Um, and we know in lots of markets, a U.S.-based certification is desirable at the professional level. What are the types of organizations that we're looking at to potentially become our channel partners in these local international markets? Great question. So uh, it's hard to give a specific answer to that, but I can kind of give a, you know, a, a, a general answer to it. So if you're, if you're, we're talking about the certification space, there are certainly uh, professional training organizations. And I think a great, a great strategy for associations is look at adjacent or I would call near associations and see where they play. So you might find, for instance, that if we take the, uh, uh, the space of operations, let's, let's take within a corporation operations. Within what is typically operations, you'll find HR, you'll find IT, you'll find all sorts of things. And you'll find that oftentimes these types of functions have different association certifications that serve them. So if you can find partners that are dealing perhaps with the HR side of the shop, you might find in fact that they have traction into, if you're from the IT space, into the IT side of the house as well. So I think 
one thing companies can do, what associations can do, is they can look at the partnerships of adjacent or near associations who aren't in direct competition with them, but converge uh, closely at similar corporations, albeit in different departments. I think that's a great way to look at expansion and um, look at the types of training organizations and consulting organizations that leverage that content. So it, it's looking at that near or adjacent space to identify partners. You certainly can also consider um, a play where you're not developing partnership, you're not developing cl clients directly per se, but you're, you're bringing your products and association services perhaps to another association in a country that can be complementary to what you do. I think those relationships are possible, but a bit harder to find because ultimately people follow the money and focus on what they have. But in finding partners, um, another thing, Sharon, I, I think that can be very useful for uh, associations who are looking to expand is if you think about how do you allocate your resources to channel partners, statistically, the top 20% of your partners are going to be more than 80% of your revenue. And really, your top 5% of your partners are your most important ones. Let's call them your stars. Then you have what we call your potential partners or your growth potential partners, which represent about 15%. So as you expand in another country, you really want to focus on finding those stars and those partners with growth potential. And I have found in particular, you really are looking for early adopter, passionate, committed organizations that can represent you properly locally. They have offices, they have staff, they can do some customer support, they are professional, they can be there and, and do things when you're not due to time zone differences. So uh, I apologize for such a long answer there. No, I, you know, it, it makes me also kind of wonder when we talk about these stars, when you're entering, let's say, a new marketplace, often I would bet an experienced channel partner, so a, a, a channel partner that maybe reps more than one association, more than one certification or training program, um, may ask you for exclusivity in, the, in that market. How, what's your general feeling oh, yeah. about offering exclusivity to partners that when you have no experience with them at that point? Don't do it. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think particularly when you're, when you're moving into a market and you need to find these very ambitious early adopter partners who have to invest a lot of money and, and, and go down a long path with you before they have meaningful revenue, it's natural for them to say they want exclusivity but it is very dangerous to give it to them. Um, ultimately, there should never be any exclusivity and customers, be individual members or corporations, should be able to decide who they want to work with. The way I've always handled it, by the way, is never to give exclusivity, but also to have an understanding that we're going to be purposeful in how we expand a channel within a country and that philosophically, when we bring new partners on, we're looking to bring new segments and new value and new customer bases to the table. We're not 
simply creating a, you know, drive to the lowest common denominator, drive to the bottom. Ultimately, with wild success of any channel, you want to grow your partner network and let the market decide. But I think with the types of businesses that associations do, you need to get there in that you need to not give exclusivity, but you also need to have fidelity to the investment your partners are making. So I have found that there's a bit of an artful balance in expanding, but doing it in a way that's fair. Um, you know, you don't want to hold back expansion, but you don't want to overexpand too soon where, where really you just don't allow people to sustain themselves. So, but don't ever agree to exclusivity. And um, yeah, it, it's a really interesting thing too. What you said that I just want to highlight for people because it stood out for me is, you know, when we think about exclusivity from, let's say our individual business perspective, what, and when I actually, when I asked the question, what I was thinking about is locking ourselves into a partner relationship that turns out not to be productive. And then, then we, you know, right. traction in the market. But what you point out too, is that if, if we enter into these exclusive partnerships within, let's say at a country level, um, what we're really doing is forcing the customer to only be able to interact with us in this one way. So we're really making a decision about who they want to contract with for them, as opposed to letting the market kind of play out. So you're in those exclusive relationships, you're almost hampering the market mechanism. Is that what you're saying? It, it, that's exactly it. And um, more importantly, you know, we've talked in previous uh, episodes of this podcast about the channel program, but one reason you tier partners uh, in channel programs and the highest tiered partner get the most rewards and typically pay the lowest cost is to give value to those partners that are more successful. So I would suggest that your partner program should address any concerns partners have about not being the only shop in town. Um, whenever I've been asked about exclusivity, I say what is true. I've never done it. And um, if it was ever to be done, there would have to be a very firm fixed commitment on a revenue stream for a fixed period of time. And it would be very high. And usually that shuts down the conversation because it's just, it's not rational. And, uh, but everyone asks it. So you got to be ready for it. Yeah, mix, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. So in, in general, um, I think there's a kind of a level of in, intrigue and excitement and everything when we talk about kind of expanding internationally and, and certainly um, for seasoned association executives that haven't done international work, it, it offers a, you know, a fantastic development path. Um, but setting up a channel network is not for the faint hearted, especially internationally. Um, right. Is it worth it in the end? Uh, I done properly. It's absolutely worth it. But you know, it, it it's a it's a good way to kind of wrap things up because channel networks take time to establish and develop, and um, they require business reengineering to ensure that you've got the right value prop for a new market. You mentioned uh, several minutes ago about how, you know, a lot of times North American companies just like to take exactly what they have international. And that's usually the case. And a lot of times your partners can help tailor it locally. But frankly, you're, if you go international 
as an association, operationally, you're going to need to really look at your structure and when do you provide customer support and what is your turnaround and how do you support partners and end customers at a distance. So it does typically require some business re-engineering on the association front, but if you do it right, you can get a global base of partners that are out there to help you find, win, make, and keep happy customers. Because that's really what it's all about. Happy customers, happy members, and you can expand your association's market reach and revenue along the way. So, uh, and find new opportunities and, can be and, a good thing. And, yeah. And it's a, I think when we talk about the ultimate impact that an association can make serving in a, a broad base of, of professionals or a broad base of companies across the globe is, is that ultimate impact. And um, so no wonder it's highly desirable and highly sought after. Jim, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Um, I will tell our audience that the last in this channel development series that we're doing next, uh, next podcast, we'll be talking about for-profit partners. And I'll say that um, as high a level of interest as we had in international expansion pre-pandemic, we're seeing a lot of associations right now starting to enter into uh, relationships with for-profit partners, um, very meaningful uh, collaborations. And uh, so we'll talk about developing the for-profit partner uh, when we get together again. So Jim, thank you so much. And thanks everybody for listening. Thanks, Sharon. Looking forward to it. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode and discover tips and information that will add value to your leadership style and your association. .org Source specializes in positioning teams for success with solutions for technology, strategy, and marketing. Please contact us at info at orgsource.com to find out how to get your organization on track to Association 4.0. You can also engage in other educational content by becoming a member of .org community or reading our books on Association 4.0, which you can find on Amazon. We look forward to hearing from you soon.